All right, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. Um, now, if you've been around Anthem for any length of time, you have probably heard me reference the movie Red Dawn before. Anybody heard me reference the movie Red Dawn before? Okay. Uh, great cinematic work. Probably deserved multiple Oscars, uh, but was shortchanged both times around in the 80s and again in the 2000s. Uh, really felt compelled by uh, the storylines, the acting, the writing, the directing, cinematography, all that. Uh, I think more than the actual movies themselves, one of the things that has stood out to me about those, and I've, I've kind of joked about this, but the idea of having to escape to the hills to evade whatever invasion or whatever catastrophe is coming on has long been like a, a daydream of mine. Uh, I just, I, I kind of love the idea. I think the only thing keeping me from being a full-blown doomsday prepper is probably my theology. Like, honestly, if, if you were to take what I'm about to teach on from First Peter away, I think I would be neck deep in, um, I don't know, owning the coolest, biggest truck that you've ever seen and decking it out with generators and uh, food for weeks and all that kind of thing. It just sounds like amazing things to me. Uh, if you were to ask my wife, there was a brief moment where I had our route planned out, like how we would escape Southern California if we needed to uh, in a pinch. And uh, it was just, you know, was that, that's just kind of how my brain works. But here's the, here's the problem with that. And, uh, I, you know, I kind of joke about Red Dawn and prepping, but one of the realities is that a lot of our lives are built around escaping the difficulties of the world. We try and avoid discomfort. We try and avoid, uh, I say conflict, and that, that probably just got way too too close to home and too tender and too psychological for some of you, but uh, we tend to avoid conflict, but even like the conflict of the world. Many of us over the last couple of months didn't even want to engage. Even if we had opinions about how things should go, we didn't even want to engage because it got so contentious and so uh, bitey and fighty that our tendency was just to, to pull back from that and to escape even from the conversation. And then you get to things like just wanting to um, kind of watch for what's happening in the world and be ready to bounce out of here. Many of you may know people that have left the state of California, and, and some of the motivations for that was the, the rising tide of a certain way of life. And it's, it's made people say, well, I don't want to live life here. I want to go somewhere else so I can live the kind of life that I want to live somewhere else. And while that might be highly tempting, and that might be the kind of thing that many of us are stirred to pursue the ideal living conditions for us in humanity. The more we study the scriptures, the more we realize that's not the call on our lives. Now, I'm not opposed to somebody moving out of state. But I do love the, the conversation about why. And I think that's a crazy important thing for us to understand. There are elements of peacemaking that would cause us to avoid certain conflict conversations. But again, it's not about whether or not you engage. It, it really is about the why and the objective. What are we trying to do when we engage the world and its contentiousness? And Peter has a lot to say about how we would enter into an era of conflict. Now, I want you to hear this. When Peter talks about what he's about to talk about, his era of conflict was essentially between the two appearances of Jesus Christ. So from the time that Jesus entered into humanity, 
which we're about to celebrate at Christmas, until the day of his return, the New Testament identifies as an era. It calls it the last days. Calls it the end times. You'll see often in the New Testament where they'll, they'll talk about it. And Peter's opening verse in our section today is the end of all things is near or at hand. And you hear him say something like that and think, we're 2,000 years later from when Peter said that. Was he wrong? Was he predicting that all things would end in 70 AD or 100 AD or 150 AD or, or name a year for 2,000 years and he was wrong? Or is the idea of near dealing with something different than the, the actual months, days, years, weeks, whatever they would be looking at waiting for the coming of Jesus? And so really what Peter is identifying is this era that we are in. And as long as we are in this era, there is an attitude that every follower of Jesus is to adopt. And that's what Peter is going to try and shape in us today is the attitude that we adopt while we wait for the coming of Jesus, no matter what is happening in the world around us. So here's kind of the thing with a passage and message like this is it can tend to be a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes uh, when you're trying on shirts and you've, we'll just say, grown a little bit and the shirt that you used to fit into feels a little bit uncomfortable. Anybody been there before in the last couple of days? Okay. Um, and it just, it's like, I, this feels like it should fit, but it's uncomfortable to hear. And that's the message that we're about to get into. All of the words, they feel like the Bible. They feel like what's familiar, but when you see what Peter's talking about, it makes us uncomfortable a little bit because it's challenging the very notion of why we do the things we do. It's not enough for Peter that we do them. He wants to shape why we do them. So that is where we're at. First Peter chapter 4. Open your Bibles. We're going to read verses 7 through 19. Here we go. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love that he throws that in. Don't just show hospitality. Do it without grumbling. That's your Christmas instruction. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Remember that phrase, good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Let me repeat that. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what then will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, this is a monster section of scripture with much to get to. So let's dive right in and we will make it happen. So first of all, the end of all things is at hand. That's where Peter starts this section. And just to reiterate, Peter's not anticipating, although I will say this, every New Testament author and many of the early church leaders and church members, they lived their lives as though Jesus Christ were about to return. They lived their lives as though Jesus Christ were about to return. There was an urgency to the way that they would approach life. Okay, Jesus is coming again, so what then should I do today because Jesus is coming again? And one of the challenges of being 2,000 years deep into this story with God is that we've grown a little bit less diligent at asking that question. Jesus Christ is coming soon, so how then should I live today if he's about to come tomorrow? But Peter's not anticipating or not predicting that Jesus is coming tomorrow. He is saying this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, buy the biggest truck, pack it up with supplies for weeks, get yourself a nice bow and arrow, And be ready to prep for all the things that are going to come. That's not what he says. Sometimes I wish that's kind of what Peter's instruction was. But he says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is the third time in two chapters that Peter has warned the people that are reading his letter about the way that they can negatively impact their prayer life by the way that they live their behaviors, the way you treat your wife, husband who follows Jesus, directly impacts the prayer life that you hope to hold on to and be effective. That's what he's been saying. And here he comes back and he says, look, if you want to be an effective prayer, it's going to start with you being sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, those Phrases seem a little bit self-explanatory, and they, they really genuinely are, but let's just talk about them for a moment. To be self-controlled means that you are diligent to oversee the order of your life. You're choosing to do the things today that will produce more of the Spirit in you tomorrow. Paul calls this in Galatians, he calls it sowing to the Spirit. Think of sowing, like putting seed out so that the spirit grows and bears fruit later. The idea is, what can I do today? What are the disciplines and behaviors that I can do today that will produce fruitfulness in the spirit tomorrow? And those are oftentimes referred to as spiritual disciplines. They're things that that you can do to cultivate the spirit. That's studying and memorizing the word of God. My dad challenged all of his grandkids and actually all of his kids and kids-in-law, to memorize John 1, 1 through 14 by Christmas. That's the, the family challenge for the month of December. And, and watching my kids get, I, I woke up to see Tyler this morning already having printed out John 1, 1 through 14 and starting to work through it. And I just thought, okay, that's, that's cultivating 
self-control. That's ordering your life in a way that today you're doing work so that tomorrow there will be fruit. There's a ton of guys that write about this, and, and you see the way that they talk about it. So often we expect that at random we could just pull on the character of Jesus, and immediately, in a moment, when we need it, we can act like Jesus when somebody offends us or when somebody does something that, that needs a Jesus response. Yet the reality is if we're not cultivating the character of Christ, we can't expect to, at the drop of a hat or at the snap of a finger, when somebody does something to upset us, we're, we're probably going to respond with anger if we're not cultivating the character of Christ. We're probably going to respond with lashing out or with bitterness or resentment in our hearts if we're not cultivating the character of Christ. It's not instantaneous. It's not microwave faith. It's something that you put into effect now. So be self-controlled. Peter says, be sober-minded. He wants us to be alert, aware of the things that are happening for the sake of your prayers. Now, sometimes we like to be alert and sober-minded so that we can be the first one to break the news to the next person. We love hearing all the things so that we can be the first one to tell somebody about the thing that's happening that they need to know about. We just like being the source. Or maybe we like to be sober-minded because we, we just genuinely, we're, we're cultural analysts and we want to try and understand how society ebbs and flows and moves and we like, to, we like to critique what's going on in the world. Well, Peter's instruction is be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You should know how to pray. You should know what to be praying about. You should know the things that are happening in the world. Where is the church being persecuted in the world? Where is their mission at work that you can be praying into that God's effectiveness and fruitfulness would multiply upon multiplication so that there can be more and more and more? That you can know what's happening in our city so you can know how to pray for Thousand Oaks. If your assumption is that everybody in Thousand Oaks thinks exactly like you, then the reality is you probably don't, probably don't know people outside of your world, outside of your circle, because they don't. They don't all think like you. And if you don't know that and don't know them and don't know how to pray for them, then that, that could be a huge issue that affects your prayers. Paul's saying, be sober-minded, be alert, because I want you to be an effective prayer. Sorry, Peter said that. Okay, so that's the first phrase. I got to pick up my pace if we're going to get all through this. Um, all right, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be sober-minded, be self-controlled. And Peter continues, and he says, for the sake of your prayers, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, so now Peter's talking about how we engage in life together. He says, I want you to love one another. He's dealing with the church. When you get to that one another, that's, that's him talking about life in the church family. Love one another earnestly. Because when you love one another, it covers a multitude of sins. Essentially, what he's saying is not that sin doesn't count when you love. He's saying when you love one another, you're quick to forgive. When you love one another, there's mercy and grace for the brokenness that exists in a community. When you love one another, you are predisposed to mercy like God is predisposed to mercy. So love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. It actually prepares us for the brokenness of each other when we choose to love in this final era. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
That's opposed to showing hospitality to one another with grumbling or not showing hospitality to one another at all. Those are both the things that Peter is fighting. Now look at this. He wants you to love one another earnestly, and he wants you to live a life of openness to the one another. He wants you to be welcoming people into your life, your home, your world, because this is a shared experience. Sometimes we like to think that being a Christian is just whatever happens between me and God and none of those other people matter. Or I really like Jesus, but I don't like his church. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I really am not a big fan of Christians. What Peter's getting at is, look, that's actually not the way this thing works. We love Jesus, and by definition, his people, his body, his family, they're a part of our story. And learning how to live with people and welcome them in is a huge part of the story of being transformed. So welcome one another. Show hospitality without grumbling. Now we get into the shortest list of spiritual gifts in the scriptures, uh, 4, 10, and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've received the grace of Jesus. And Peter's understanding is that each one of us has received a gift according to the grace of Jesus. So you are gifted to serve the church family. And we see different lists of gifts around the scriptures. Peter gives two as an example, speaking and serving. Those are the two that he gives. Paul gives other lists in other places. Uh, 12, 12, 4, 4. You can look at those for a list of gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Those are the places that you can go to just see the different gifts uh, given in the scriptures. But even then, the objective is not necessarily naming your gift and knowing exactly which one on the list but knowing that the Spirit has empowered you to serve the body of Christ. And Peter wants to make sure you see it as a stewardship to serve the body with the way that the Spirit has been given to you. Now, that word stewardship is critical. Using a spiritual gift, it's, it's, it's about taking what's been entrusted to you and using it accordingly so that you can build up the body of Christ so that you can contribute because ultimately the stewardship, Jesus is depending on you for the health of the body. That's the way that Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that, that there's a interdependence. That Anthem Church is not functioning properly, and I'm, I'm just going to use this as an example, and this has sort of been kind of our, our way, even just for the last couple of months, and we have to discipline ourselves out of it, where we, we kind of show up, and there's a group of people that put on the day, and then everybody disperses, and that's our Sunday gatherings, and at community groups, sometimes it can be a family that's a host and a leader, and everybody shows up and then disperses. And the gathered places of the church family are actually, they're, they're opportunities to contribute your spirit filling as a stewardship so that other people can be transformed to look more like Jesus. And so you don't attend a community group. You don't attend Anthem Church. We are members of the same body. And our membership contributes one to another. And the total health of the body is dependent on everybody saying, I know that I have the spirit of God. And I'm prepared to steward God's spirit in me to bless those around me. 
So he says, whoever speaks, do it as though you're speaking from God, one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God. That's the idea of a spiritual gift. It's not a personality test or character assessment. It's actually understanding that the Spirit has gifted you to contribute the Spirit to one another. So we serve or we speak knowing that God's spirit is actually embodying that service or embodying that teaching to affect the lives of other people. And that's an important thing to understand that when we speak, the spirit fills that. And he wants us to speak according to that. He wants us to be aware of that. And same with our service, that it's with the strength that God provides. Now, this little phrase can can turn into a flyover phrase, like a flyover state, just something you don't really think about very often, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're being honest, when you read through the scriptures and you see a phrase like that, do you kind of just like, just kind of pitter out at the end of the sentence and just realize that it's, it's like some frilly, just, it's like their version of an exclamation point. Do you ever feel like that, that that's just kind of like the end of a a biblical sentence? This is actually pretty critical for what Peter's getting at. He says this, you would use your gifts, you would steward your gifts in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory and dominion. What have we been talking about about exile? That while we have this arena that is the, the world that we're in, we have a different king, we have a different emperor, we have a different president, we have a different leader. Like, we have God who is on his throne, period. And while the world around us continues to operate and we're called to be citizens in that world and to contribute and be good citizens, no less, we have this God who is on his throne, who has all dominion, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. And there's this sense that your life has the ability to affirm the dominion of God and to give him glory. I want to say that again. Your life has the ability to affirm the dominion of God and to give him glory. Now, built into that sentence is the reality that your life also has the ability to deny the dominion of God and to reject his glory. How you choose to live matters in whether God receives glory or whether his dominion is affirmed in your life. Now, why would that be important? Why would it be important that the day-to-day life that you live affirms the dominion or the authority of God? Let me just say this. Anything else, any other time in the scriptures, is called idolatry. When we do not affirm the dominion or the authority of God, in the scriptures, and we place it on anything else, ourself, something in the world, another power, another spiritual force, another element in the world, our spouse, our boss, money, 
The list can go on and on and on. And any time we take God's authority and we don't affirm it with the way that we're living, it is an idolatrous lifestyle. It's choosing to worship a false god saying that the authority of my life lies elsewhere than God on the throne. And if we are choosing that, then we find ourselves in a very precarious position before God. Now let's keep going through the text and we'll kind of circle back around to this idea of God's authority in our lives. So there's another section here. It starts in verse 12. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I honestly, I, I don't have factual evidence of this, but I do not believe that Nero read Peter's letter and then decided to start burning Christians at the stake. Like, I, I don't think there was any connection there. But Peter's words had a very prophetic reality to them in that that was a primary means of causing Christians to suffer is fire itself. Peter was doing something different with this passage but it's pretty wild to see the words that Peter chooses to use. Now, if you want to understand why he chooses these words, you can go to uh, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah verse, chapter 13, verse 9. And this is uh, a prophecy that Peter is alluding to when he talks about a fiery trial. He says this. He says, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So Peter's saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He's pulling from this prophecy from hundreds of years before that God said, yes, I'm going to put my people through the fire. Yes, I'm going to refine them and test them and develop them. And how many times is this picked up on by the New Testament writers? Peter talks about it right here. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. Your faith is going to be tested. You have to know this going into following Jesus, that it is the narrow road. It's the difficult path. You are going to be hated for his name's sake, Jesus said. Your faith is going to be tested, and endurance, perseverance, and steadfastness are required to walk through the difficulties of this life. So what do we do with something like that, knowing that fiery trials are coming and that Jesus is not opposed to these fiery trials in our lives. That's kind of strange, isn't it? It's kind of weird to think that in some way, our, our suffering or our difficulty or our hardship might be the will of God. Now, Peter wants to make a very clear point about when it is the will of God and when it's not the will of God. But there's, there's something there that we need to understand. And that is that God actually wants you here even when it gets difficult, the refined version of you is a better carrier of his name every day of your life that you press on and that you walk in faithfulness 
because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, you are doing a better job carrying his name than you did the day before. The more suffering you endure, the more difficulty that you face as you walk through that with diligence, it produces a a greater testimony to the finished work of Jesus. Let's look at a couple of these things. It says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. This is not strange. We knew this was coming. That's what Peter's getting at. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14 is the key. Listen to this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer for the name of Christ, what are, we, what are we called when you give yourself to Jesus and you're filling out a uh, census or a form? You're called a Christian. That's the word that we've used for since Antioch, where they were first called Christians. That phrase means little Christs. And in Antioch, they used it as an insult. The people that were mocking followers of Jesus called them Christians as an insult. Look at these little Christs. And you know what the Christians did? They took that as a badge of honor. They're, they're mocking us for looking like Jesus. It means we're living the right kind of life. If I'm living to follow Jesus and somebody notices that enough to persecute me, that is the right kind of life to be living. I am doing the job that I've been called to do of living a faithful, Jesus-like life. There's a guy named John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called God Has a Name. We actually preached through uh, Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 a few years ago, and we borrowed John Mark's title because it was such a helpful book. But he says this. This is a long quote, but kind of track with this, about the idea of being called little Christs or carrying the name of Jesus. He says, Yahweh is jealous for his reputation. In fact, people coming to see him for who he really is is one of the central themes of the Bible. That's where we come in. Because Yahweh is locked in relationship with us. There is a symbiotic relationship between Yahweh's name, his reputation, and how we, the people of God, live. Because Yahweh's name is also our name. Throughout the scriptures, we read that Israel is called by the name of Yahweh. The idea here is we have an intimate, family-like relationship with the creator, like a spouse or child. Like when you get married and you take on your spouse's name or you're a child and you carry the name of your parents, that's the kind of relationship, that's the kind of relationship we have with God that we have come into covenant relationship with him and now we are Yahweh people. We're, we're Jesus people. We are Christians. We're little Christs. We bear his name. John Mark continues, are you getting the idea? As God's people, we are called by his name But with this incredible marriage-like, family-like relationship we have with Yahweh comes a staggering responsibility to mirror and mimic what God is like to the world. What Yahweh wants is a living, breathing people to put his name on display to show the world what he is like, not only by what we say, but by how we live. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you live your life like Jesus and the world reacts to it, there's blessing in that. Peter says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I don't know what that, I don't know what that does to you to hear a phrase like that. That the spirit of glory and of God rests upon me as I carry his name. I just, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Like when we think about our role, what we are here to do, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And when you baptize them, you're baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because they are joining the family of God and they are becoming carriers of his name just like you and just like me. That's what Jesus did with his authority is he gave us his name. I will be your God and you will be my people. So go and live my character. Show people my mercy. Let them experience my grace firsthand. Let them know the hospitality of the Father God who when they start to come back to me, runs to meet them and throws a cloak around them and puts a ring on them and gives a fattened calf and a feast because my child that was lost has now been found. And that's the heart that we take on when we carry the name of Jesus. Peter wants to make sure that it looks the right way, that that suffering is the right kind of suffering. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, if you've ever read that before and just wondered why in the world meddler is included with murderer, thief, and evildoer, let's talk about that for just a moment. Peter's not writing a specific list. Like in Corinthians, when Paul writes and he says, one of you is guilty of doing some really uh, inappropriate stuff with an inappropriate family member, uh, he's very specific. Peter's not being specific because he's not writing to a specific church or a specific person. This is like to all of you all. I want you to hear this. Let's talk about the major things. Don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. If you're doing those things and you experience consequence for that, that's the way that it's supposed to be. But Peter adds in this word, and I, I read a lot, a lot of commentaries on this stuff, and they're all looking at it like, honestly? He adds in this word just to, to deepen the breadth of the kinds of things that we can do to dishonor the name of God. When you think of meddling, just, you know, what, what comes to your mind when you think of meddling? It's the idea of, of dipping into somebody else's business. And that could, that could translate to gossip or slander. That could translate to manipulation. That could translate to a lot of different things that we do in our lives to dip into somebody else's business. But Peter's basically, he's not even really concerned with the specifics of meddling, but he's saying, look, if you're doing these things, you're, you're acting in an ungodly way. The ref is throwing the flag for unsportsmanlike conduct in your life. Just call it that. And you receive due penalty for your choices. That's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about. 
Francis Chan used to say, uh, if you're suffering for being stupid, it's not suffering, it's just consequence. And that's kind of the idea here, is that what the refining fire is when we walk faithfully, carrying the name of Jesus, embodying his character and his person in a broken and fallen world, and we receive heat of any kind for that, that's the kind of suffering that he's talking about. Exclusively, explicitly that. And to that, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, there's that name again. The word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. Antioch, and here's another one. If anyone suffers as a Christian, a little Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, Peter goes to an interesting place with this. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Generally speaking, we think of judgment as a bad thing. Judgment is a negative thing. Judgment is all over the Bible, and the reality is judgment can be terrifying to anybody who has not already been declared righteous. That's justification. That doctrine of justification is absolutely essential to us. It's all through the book of Romans, all through the book of Galatians, that you've been declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ, And so what that means is that we actually want the judgment of God. We want it to begin with us, the household of God. We want to stand before the living God. I want the fire of God's purity and holiness to burn off any sinful residue in me. I have Jesus completely and totally. I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me. I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want one thing that I do to dishonor the name of Yahweh. I don't want one thing that I do to take somebody's picture of Jesus and skewer it. I want my life to look pure and holy and righteous and good. I want judgment. I want the laser focus of the holy eye of God to come on my life and burn off anything in me that does not look like him. I want that. Do you want that? Do you want holiness? Do you want righteousness? Do you want the presence of God to burn off everything that does not look like Jesus in you? We open our hands and we say, thank you, righteous and holy judge. Bring your conviction. Holy Spirit, is there anything in me that you find offensive? I want to present that before you today. I want to experience your grace and your forgiveness, but but my repentance is not just so that I don't feel bad. I want to live differently. I don't want to lie. I want no deceit to come off this tongue. I don't want to slander. I don't want anybody to experience from a mouth that worships God some kind of curse. I don't want to lust over somebody. I don't want a sister in Christ to feel demeaned or even a a female in this world to feel demeaned by somebody who loves and follows Jesus Christ because I used her as an object of my desire. I don't want that. 
God, judge me and refine me and purify me through your refiner's fire so that I can walk and look and live like Jesus so that people can meet Jesus when they meet me. We want God's fire in our lives. So when Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, you don't get scared of that. You raise your hand and say, yes, please. Yes, please. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? These passages can look threatening. I personally don't believe they're a threat. Peter's entire posture of writing this letter has been missional. You're in exile in a foreign land. How can they know Jesus? If, if judgment begins with us, well, what's going to happen to them? Do they get to experience some of the grace of God because God is refining you? Do they get to experience some of his mercy because God refined you and the mercy flowed through you to them? He quotes a, a passage from Psalms. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, I'm sorry, Proverbs, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This was my Red Dawn killing passage. This is where all my dreams died. I actually had a Pinterest board called In Case of Red Dawn. You could probably still find it if you still use Pinterest. Had all the coolest gear and gadgets on there. But here's the thing. Our job is not to escape a broken world. Honestly, if you're over California, you're over its morality, you're over its politics, you're over its weather. <laughs> Just kidding. You're over its cost of living, you're over its whatever. I want you to see this as mission field one. I can understand why you wouldn't want to be here anymore for whatever reason you've got. But I would want you to present that to God and say, okay, wait, before I go, where do you want me on mission? What do you want me to bring to the table wherever I go? I have this conversation with people that move out. You're going to find the sinful brokenness wherever you move. It's there. Trust me. So wherever you go, go on mission. And if it's to stay here, stay on mission. And if you suffer according to God's will, you entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. This is Peter's way of saying some of you are going to die for your faith. And I want you to entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Your life could be taken, but your soul is held onto by the creator of all things. You are secured so you can give your life to the greatest cause that has ever existed and that is carrying the name of Jesus into a sinful, broken, hurting world so they might experience life. That's the call. That's the invitation. That's why you're here if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what you're signing up for, is to be here, to come and die. That's how we truly live. 
That's what you raised your hand to. And that's how we're called to live. One of our hopes for 2021, we'll talk about this a little bit at the family meeting, is taking this from the big idea of that we should be exiles and starting to put practices into our life to talk about how. How do I live this out? What are the things that I can sow today that will bear fruit tomorrow and next week and next month and next year? And that's going to be a bit of our focus for 2021 is taking this big idea and starting to narrow it into how do I live my life every single day to produce this as a lifestyle? What can I do? And I hope that that would be, I hope hearing this passage, it stirs in you a desire. I want my life to look like that. Because this is what we're called to as Jesus people, Christians, the people of God, is to carry his name, his reputation, and his character. Jesus, I, I just I pray for us as a church family. I want the city of Thousand Oaks to look at Anthem Church collectively and her individual body parts and that through us, they would know you and your character and your goodness and how they can experience your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, we want your fire. We want it to purify us. We want your judgment to begin at this household. Lord, we ask for a sweeping conviction of your Holy Spirit for the sin in this household. We want you to come into our lives, to come into this church, this family, this household. And we want you to upend us, not with guilt, but with the righteous conviction of the Holy Spirit that points out where we are living that is not consistent with your character and your person. Jesus, would you begin your judgment here? We ask for it. We long for it. We submit ourselves to it to refine us and purify us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.